0: Hi everyone, my name is Darren Griffith and you're very welcome to the third episode of the Lusk Athletic Club podcast. Thanks for tuning in and of course helping us to grow our listenership. So please do continue to follow, rate and share our episodes. we have got some really great guests in this episode. I talked to Eva Hearn about track sprinting, her experience on scholarship in the US and also about nutrition. I also interview Lusk AC member Mark Dunn about running and racing whilst managing his diabetes. I'll start with some Lusk AC news. We've had some brilliant participation and performances at the National Senior Indoor Championships back in late February and in March at the Leinster Junior Senior and Masters Indoors, the Dublin 10k Men's Championships in Garristown and also the Bohemian Half Marathon. Many medals, including team medals from the Garestown 10K have been won along the way. And there's too many medal winners really to name, so suffice to say, you know who you are. Many congratulations. And of course, we're very proud of all our athletes. Massive thanks to our club captains and coaches for their incredible support. We also had a very successful Lusk 4 Mile on the 5th of March. Congratulations to Annette Foy and her team on a really wonderful and successful event. A shout out to the first male runner home, Ian Guydon from Clonliffe Harriers and first female runner home, Kate Purcell from Rohini Shamrocks. So I'd like to kick off by sharing some of Julie Griffith's Vox Pops, which she recorded after the Lusk Four Mile on the 5th of March.
1: So first of all, congratulations! Thank you so Lady. much. Well done. Thank you. So tell us about your race experience. Yeah, really good today. This is the second time I've done this course. Really love it. Um, I think it's a really fair, honest course. It's got the nice bit of downhill, but then the, the two, and the two laps are good because you can kind of benchmark as well. So um, yeah, really good experience. Weather perfect. Couldn't ask for better conditions. Yeah. How would you say the last four mile compares to other races? Um, I really like it. I think there's a great atmosphere, a really good setup, very well organised. No problem with parking. I love that they have the school um, and a really nice atmosphere after the race and very good support on the course. So you couldn't ask for more. And the the course is fantastic. Um, Not too many turns. It's just a really nice, nice two loops. Um, So tell us about your race experience today.
2: Uh, The race was superb today. Really, really good, yeah. um, Conditions were amazing. Yeah, the people were brilliant. Uh, Very well organised, very well run. So superb, yeah, really good race.
0: How would you describe the
2: atmosphere? The atmosphere was electric. Uh, Superb. Lots of music on the course. And yeah, just good fun. Yeah, really good day. Brilliant. Will you come back again? I definitely will. Yeah, without a (laughs) doubt. Where did you place? Um, I was 10th overall, first in my category. So yeah, good day out. Fantastic. Well done, congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: So tell us about your race experience today. Yeah, had a, uh, had a great time. Uh, it was my first time doing the last four miles, so i uh, just joined the club early la- or late last year, so it was great to do it. Great atmosphere, loads of cheering around the course, so it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. tough though, not the easiest course. <laughs> Lots of hidden inclines and that, so yeah, glad to have it done. And what what would you how would you describe the the atmosphere? Brilliant. It was just great community effort by everybody. Loads of people around the course cheering us on, and yeah, just brilliant turnout. Great day. And what was the highlight? of your experience today finishing the race yeah, yeah getting it done and you know when someone chatted to me it's only 100 meters left and I just that was the best bit pushed me on to the end so and it was really good yeah so you're very welcome which club are you running for today uh, Rohini Shamrocks brilliant and tell us about your race experience uh, <laughs> well going back
0: years ago I did the old Lusk AC back in the 80s it must have been and it's so delighted to see it back in the last few years that yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. brings back all memories in the like I was younger my father used to run and we, Lusk was always four mile racing was always the eating to come out of so it's really great to be back here at it again like with Covid being gone now racing coming back it's great to see the numbers are coming out Peep, the, the whole village embraces it I mean, the, the way Lusk has got bigger over the years Lusk AC has become a bigger club yeah. and it's great to see it long may it continue when
1: it hats off to Lusk
0: AC You're pulling off another great event yeah,
1: brilliant thank you very much thank, That's you. Thank, you.
0: thank you thanks to Julie and the interviewees for sharing their experiences of the day you know really pleased with the Vox Pops uh so I hope to share more of those uh, from future events. Up next, we have my interview with Eva Hearn. So hi everyone, I'd like to welcome Eva Hearn. Many of you will know Aoife as the dietitian expert on operation transformation for 12 very successful seasons. Aoife also runs her own nutrition consultancy in Waterford, Nutrition Solutions Clinic. And over the last couple of years, has started lecturing at Setu in Waterford. I hope I have pronounced that correctly. Um, Furthermore, Aoife is a very talented athlete. She is a former 100 metre national senior champion, a 55 metre conference title winner in the US, holds the Irish record for 55 metres and was a member of the Irish International Athletic Squad for six years. So Aoife, thanks very much for agreeing to talk to us.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Delighted to.
0: And maybe just for full transparency, um, I would have known you, Aoife, as a, a teenager in Waterford City, but I, I genuinely had no idea you were uh, such a talented athlete. So could you tell us, please, about how you got into athletics?
1: Yeah, um, how do, I suppose my dad was a sprinter as well, so I, I guess maybe that's where some of my interest came. Uh, but my good friend, who still is my friend, Deline, you know some of the Daleen's are. Uh, they were all going up to local athletic club. and sure, I just wanted to go with them. So kind of that's and our local athletic club was St Mary's Bally Gunner, which is actually no longer in existence. Uh, it was a juvenile club, so that's kind of how it started. And. I suppose. So I was seven going up because you could you had to be seven, I think, for insurance reasons back then. And I loved it. And I suppose I realised I was kind of good at it. So I think that's what really helped um, me stay interested, especially at a younger age.
0: Brilliant. So it's a shame uh, St. Mary's isn't around anymore. And I, I know we'll talk a little bit maybe about Waterford Athletic Club later on. But clearly you showed early promise. Um, So kind of what were the key steps or milestones along the way that uh, enabled you to develop into a a nationally competitive track sprinter?
1: Um, I suppose I I still remember my first national win was when I was under 14 and I um, was running the 60 metres that day. And I remember there was a a well-known athlete who was my age at the time. I didn't know her because I had never been in the nationals before. And we're up in Nina, uh, indoor track. And I just, I literally ran with abandon and with joy and really didn't have a whole lot of pressure on myself. And I suppose that's the first race I remember winning and thoroughly enjoying the experience. Um, so I suppose that kind of was the first step, I suppose, into many um you know, other um, competitions, I suppose, as I got older. And, you know, I suppose it was just something that I truly loved. And I was really lucky that I had some really good coaches and a really good club around me that really supported me to kind of be the best that I could be. Um, I mean, from a club, we never actually, I know a lot of people probably did um, the community games. Like we never actually did the community games in our club, but we would have done, you know, all like the Munsters and Nationals obviously. And we I, I remember like the school athletics being so much fun. So I went to the Earthline in Waterford. And uh it was just again, it was one of the sports that our, our our school did, I suppose, and were interested in. And we kinda had a few good people around us. And you know, it was just really, really fun experiences. And I suppose one you know one competition kind of led on to the next, you know. And so uh so yeah, it just kinda It kind of snowballed, I suppose, really, until I was 17 and finished in school and deciding what I was going to do.
0: Brilliant. And I suppose I I led with the question citing uh, nationally competitive. But of course, you you competed uh, on the international stage. And and then, you know, you went to the US on an athletic scholarship uh, in 1998. So I'm really keen to talk about your experience in the US. Firstly, firstly, what were the benchmarks? How do you get a scholarship, for example?
1: Well, I would say, and I think this is for any young athlete listening, that I suppose I always felt I wasn't good enough to go on a scholarship to America, you know. And in hindsight, I probably didn't appreciate the talent that I actually had. And so I kind of felt that anywhere it would take me, I would go. Um and I think in hindsight, I should have been a lot more pickier about where I went the first time at least. Um, so I suppose what kind of happened with me when I finished my Leaving search, I really had no clue what I wanted to do. So I got two offers for university in London and in Limerick, I think, and I deferred both of them and I stayed in Waterford training for the year. And so I did a secretarial course that I hated every minute of. But when I went to college, I was very happy that I could type. Um, but yeah, so I, I trained for the year and I had a really good friend who's still a good friend, Susan Smith, who was a 400 meter hurdler from Waterford um, um, multi-Olympian. and multi uh, Olympian. And I went training with her kind of warm weather training for two weeks. And. Um, and I think some of the coaches there had maybe seen me train and kind of felt that maybe that was an option then for me. So it wasn't, I suppose, the scholarship wasn't something I ever really aspired to. I I, I got offered a scholarship from uh University of Southern Alabama, I think, and then also University of Rhode Island. Uh, and that's where I went to originally then. Um, so a year out from school in 1998, then I uh, started I was seven. I just turned 18, I think. And I literally was put on a plane, didn't know who was picking me up from that plane at the time before mobile phones. Uh, yeah, so it's a mad time to think about it, really. Um, but a really, really exciting and really fun five years ahead of me, as it turned out.
0: That's really great. Um, I'm trying to stop saying uh, fantastic all the time. It's one of those words that I keep saying uh, on on the podcast. But um, so, I mean, it seems to me just looking at the timelines, um, you you know, you set your records, for example, the current national indoor record of 7.09 seconds for 55 meter indoors in your early 20s in the US. So could you tell us maybe about living and training in the US? Was it a completely different experience Uh, to what you were used to or was there similar training regimes and so on?
1: Yeah, and I think that I suppose when I went to Rhode Island initially, it probably wasn't really a sprinting university. Um, Maybe in hindsight, I feel I was a little poorly advised. But again, I didn't think I was good enough, you know, so I was happy to be going and to have this opportunity. Um, You know, the interesting thing is when I was kind of preparing for this podcast, it's actually... 25 years ago today, it was the 20th of February that I set that time, uh, and I was I was looking through my old training records.
0: If, if that didn't happen by uh, accident, no, let's be honest.
1: I'm not, not funny, not crazy. That's gas, that's and gas. you know the really interesting thing was when I was going through all um, my training and the record. I used to keep a training diary. Like what kills me is that none of the, I was never happy with any race I ran. You know, and that's now especially when I went to America. Maybe before that, I, I remember time. I was really happy with my performance but I, I suppose I was so self-critical you know so hard on myself I really hope that Rashida Ad- Adelecki doesn't ever run at 55 metres because I swear she'll she'll blow it up out of the water if she ever does <laughs>
0: well, There's some some really talented sprinters at the moment it's very exciting time for Irish athletics no doubt um,
1: oh,
0: Yeah and were you <laughs> homesick or did you settle in well or
1: yeah. So suppose I would say like New England is very like Ireland in some regards, you know, I really there was a lot of Irish around there at the time. So I had a friend who was in Harvard and I had another friend in Providence College. And so um, I went over there and I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. I, my mother didn't hear from me for three days because I was too scared to ask anyone to use their, their house phone. I'd say she didn't know where I was. Um, but yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. And then I came home that Christmas. So my very first Christmas home. And oh my God, I was so homesick after I went back. So homesick. I found that really, really difficult. I had really good friends in Ireland that I'm still good friends with today. And so it was really hard leaving then. But actually after that kind of period, I was fine. You know, I, I made some really good friends in college in Rhode Island that I'm still really good friends with today. I really enjoyed it. I loved, like, I mean, all of our college was based around training pretty much, you know, so we had classes till around lunchtime and then we would go training from three o'clock till six o'clock. Um, and then we'd all go and be together, so it was like this one big family. And I'm an only child, and I think I just loved that feeling of being part of this big family that everyone was working towards, kind of a similar goal, I suppose.
0: Brilliant. That's that's really brilliant that you know you settled in and as you said made friends for life, and it sounds like a fantastic experience. Um, I suppose just yeah. maybe to get to get your thoughts on, uh, like, do you think Irish athletes can can know. In the current environment, achieve their full potential training solely in Ireland. For example, do people need to go abroad anymore?
1: Yeah, no, uh, and I and I think you know, and I kind of mentioned it earlier. Rhode Island probably wasn't a, a real sprinting focus, and I actually think like some of those times from my first, you know, year in in America were really based on all that training and volume work I had done before. Um, so you know, I absolutely think people can perform at their best based in Ireland obviously there might be periods of warm weather training that are required but um, you know I, I don't think you need to go to America to be to be an amazing athlete but you know after my second year in Rhode Island I actually transferred to the University of Tennessee because I really wasn't happy with how my training was going um and, and at that stage I suppose I was really I was trying to kind of get back to where I had been before I left Ireland um and I'm not sure I ever really achieved that again um but such an amazing experience along the way you know I suppose I feel now you know that athletics I've gotten so much out of it you know i Amazing education, you know, an amazing experience living abroad with, you know, friends and people that I've met from all walks of life that I just could never have met if I had stayed in Ireland. So, you know, there's lots of um, benefits, I suppose, to what I've gotten from athletics. I think that maybe by the end of when I finished, when I graduated from Tennessee, I had to go and do a dietetic internship and I went to Mass General in Boston and... I kind of fallen out of love with the sport. I think at that stage, I felt I'd done enough and I just, you know, maybe I felt I didn't reach my true potential, but at that stage, I didn't feel I wanted to maybe put the effort in that required me to get to it. You know, I was moving on with my life. And I guess the training to be a dietitian was really intense. There were like 14-hour days and it just wasn't going to be consistent. Maybe it was what I needed to do um, from a training perspective anymore.
0: Yeah. And, I mean, you've had a f- fantastic career um, subsequent to, to your your track um, your track experiences. Um, so, look, at, at Lusk AC, you know, we've lots of really promising young sprinters and it's fantastic to see them training and compete. And we asked one of our juvenile track sprinters, uh, Ross Moore, to submit some questions um, if you're up first, just to get your your, yeah, your, your thoughts. It'd be brilliant. Um, so what do you think the balance should be between running and gym work?
1: Now, I would have to say I'm no coach, Um, but obviously from a sprinting point of view, like you need strength and, you know, there's maybe different beliefs around when young athletes need to actually start really serious weight training. But, you know, it really comes back to being a sprinter. You have to run fast and like, you know, it's a habit. It's it's doing everything fast. And I would say i talk fast i walk fast everything about what i do is fast and i think to really um you know really nurture that you have to make sure that everything you do you're bringing that speed to it and that comes into the weights program as well and obviously the two of them really work well together but uh, I don't think I'd be the best person to advise oh, yeah, on, on how much of either you should be doing you know
0: yeah no, no that's fine that's just your thoughts just general chit chat I, so, I mean yeah. uh, next up we have what's the longest run a sprint athlete should potentially include in their weekly plan I, I, I added in potentially there to get you off the hook <laughs>
1: Well, I we was we a very it. lazy sprinter. <laughs> <laughs>
2: okay. I'd, say
1: the longest I ever, I'd say the longest I ever did in training was maybe 200 metres. Like, I was a pure sprinter. Uh, I hated even running the 200 when I had to in competition. Uh, so I was delighted in America when it was 55 metres. Uh, but no, I, you know, again... Obviously, depending on your sprint event, if you're running a 200 or 400, you're going to need that sprint endurance, right? But again, I think it really comes back to, you know, practicing your technique and, you know, really making sure that every drill, even every time you walk up the stairs, you know, that you have that, you know, that your foot is angled the right way as if you're on a track. So, again, I think to be a sprinter it needs to be part almost of everything you do, you know, and really mindful of, you know, all of those things that are really going to uh, help you enhance what you do, you know?
0: Yeah. Okay. Any advice for improving block technique?
1: Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> it is all about practice, isn't it? And really, you know, even I would say, what did, I remember Linford Christie's coach Back in the day saying you have to go on the V of bang, you know, you're really it is practicing, I suppose, all of those things that really help with reaction. And actually nutrition kind of plays a role in that as well. You know, that being well fueled really allows your brain to be to work at its best. And so Again, with with uh, with practice and your block technique, it is, again, practice. And I would say, you know, there are lots of recommendations on how it should be, but it needs to be comfortable for you. You know, so sometimes I think a lot of times you need to really trust yourself. And just because you don't have the perfect technique or any of these things, if that's what works for you and you are getting the best out of it. well, then sometimes maybe you don't need to change, you know, what's working, you know.
0: Okay, it sounds good. That's great advice. Um, And then I like this question. um, Any tips for athletes that play other sports and how to manage that? I think you were a keen hockey player, if I remember right.
1: I did. I loved hockey in secondary school. Um, And actually, I gave it up for a year when I was running. But what I realised was that I really missed it. And so when I was in sixth year, I did play hockey, I think, as well. And I did. I ran. And I was trying to do my leave and So it really is all about time management. And I would say now it is probably important that the coaches are talking to each other or that there's some kind of communication, because obviously it is really easy for young athletes to be overtrained. And so it is making sure that things aren't being duplicated and that rest is so important part of training um rest and sleep is training as far as i'm concerned and so again it's how you fit that piece in you know i think i think it can be really good to be doing other sports it brings another level of fitness but it all has to be part of the big plan i suppose you know
0: yeah yeah um any other words of advice you would offer young track sprinters
1: Believe in yourself, I would say so important, you know, I think we often and I, I reflect on um, my track career now and I feel I didn't maybe I didn't think I was as good as I was when I look back on it now, you know, and so it's really important to, I suppose, you know, celebrate those wins and to really uh, never underestimate yourself. So and it is all about enjoying yourself. So really have fun, be in the moment and train your ass off.
0: That's good. Sounds good. OK, brilliant. Um, So I know you're still active in, in athletics, uh, perhaps through your, your, your family and so on, but it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about Watford AC and maybe your role at the club.
1: Yeah, so I've kind of only started going back into the club in the last few years as my kids now are um, getting involved. And so we run a little athletics that's kind of for under seven. So kind of five to seven, I guess. And just getting kids back active and into um, into an athletic uh, family, I suppose, you know. So we meet once a week and we have kind of our older children then who meet on the track. Little athletics tends to be a lot of fun. But again, it's trying to bring in some of those techniques, you know, even with high jump and um, shot putting and different things. So to try and get them some of these techniques early, I guess, you know um but in, i ran in waterford ac as i was a senior athlete and um it's been a very supportive club and it's really important i think that we have lots of offerings for clubs and areas isn't it you know we see clubs kind of getting bigger but it, you know it's really important to have i think multiple clubs uh, available in different towns and cities and really supporting athletes you know to do to reach their potential you know
0: yeah, that's great. And you know, actually I had a good look at the uh, club website. It's, a, it's an excellent website, by the way. Uh, I wanted to say that. Um, yeah, and, uh, and lots of
1: really good athletes that have come through that club, you know. So uh, Waterford has some really good athletics uh, history, I suppose. And so it's important to keep that going.
0: I you know, I had a misspent teenage youth. If, uh, if only I could go back uh, 30 years and give it a go. I'd, I'd, I'd <laughs> love to. I'd love to. But um, so maybe moving on to nutrition. Um, I mean, you've worked with some fantastic sports teams and organisations, including Athletics Ireland, Kerry Senior Football Team and the Tipperary senior hurling team including in 2017 when they won the the All Ireland and um, there was clearly no jobs going in Waterford at the time with the Waterford hurlers but uh, but I mean well, that's
1: Tipperary me
0: <laughs> they got in there first they were fast they were fast um, and
1: actually they so I worked with them from 2009 to 2018 they won the All Ireland in 2010 and 2016 and they were at the All Ireland final I think five times in those 9 years five or six times oh so yeah God. So it was a really successful
0: uh, team, yeah. Well, I remember w- w- watching the uh, the victory speech and and your name being called out. Um, <laughs> so that was fantastic, yeah. Um, so I suppose, uh, firstly, kind of how important is nutrition to the to the performance of you know your typical AC member, the like of, the likes of myself and my friends, we train, you know, twice a week. We'd probably run three or four times a week. Um, you know, do our our kind of club runs and our club competitions. Um, How important is is it to your average club member?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it is huge importance. And I think often within sports nutrition, we only think of nutrition in terms of performance. But... You know, nutrition's real function, I suppose, from my point of view, a lot of times is in enhancing and maintaining a strong immune system. So people are not getting sick and putting them out of training and also prevent an injury, you know. So, again, you know, how well we eat helps prevent overuse injuries, but also keeps us feeling well, have enough energy to, to do the best that we can do. So from a performance point of view. So, you know, it, I suppose it has a lot of value. And I think, again, when we think of an average athlete who just wants to enjoy a sport, but also maybe, you know, get on and do as good as they can do, nutrition definitely has a role in allowing that athlete to have enough energy. But also, I think when we look at kind of recovery nutrition, you know, plays a really important role uh, around immune system and, and performing good the next time you train. So, yeah, huge value.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. Um, so then, as a follow on, what would be your top three sports nutrition tips, please?
1: Well, recovery, 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 and (laughs) I, and I, I, you know, I think that that time after training, people really undervalue, and it is a real time that we're trying to put back in the nutrition that was used to do your sport. So, again. Often people ignore that time and just warm down and maybe get home and, event, and have a shower and eventually eat. But it is trying to eat sooner after that exercise. Again, it has an immune function, but also it helps to prevent overuse injuries, helps to um, refuel the energy that was used. So, again, recovery is so important. Rest is so important. And I see it a lot, athletes training every day of the week and not actually having any rest. So, again, that rest piece is really important to really allow you get the most out of your training as long as you're well nourished for that training. So, I mean, I I think if I I think of the three top tips, I would say eating regularly, making sure there's not long gaps between your eating and making sure there's enough, you know, of all the macronutrients. But I suppose particularly when you think of the lead up to exercise enough carbohydrate particularly, and then in that recovery phase, making sure you're getting adequate recovery. So all of those things really allow an athlete to perform at their best and adapt to the training that they're doing.
0: Yeah. OK, brilliant. Um, I've changed fantastic to brilliant now today. So that's <laughs> a bit of brilliant. OK, uh, so um, I was out of interest. And how would the diet of an inter-county hurler compared to a hundred meter sprinter? Just to <laughs> throw a weird one in there for you.
1: Well, I guess, you know, if we think about a um, 100 meter sprinter and only that 100 meters, the nutrition they have is not going to play as much role as it would for an athlete who's performing for 70 minutes or longer. So, you know, again the performance day nutrition might be quite different but again if we think about the type of training that um, an intercounty hurler is doing and a sprinter you know they will have similar types of training especially in the early season when there's a lot of focus on fitness and maybe sprint endurance and things so you know again I suppose as, uh, any kind of intermittent sports and we think of hurling, football, soccer they're going to have a much higher reliance on carbohydrate particularly rather than that sprinter will throughout, the t- throughout their um, training and all so even in their performance of 100 meters but um you know across the board most athletes are still going to need the majority of what they eat come from carbohydrates followed by protein and then fat being the the um, um the least amount of what we need in, in an entire day the percentages and volumes of what that is will vary from athlete to athlete and will actually vary from sport to sport as well so again even when if we think of a hurling team you know what the goalkeeper needs and what a midfield player are going to need are going to be very different so it is really important that nutrition advice is personalised and that athletes are you know um, given advice that's appropriate to them at their types of, uh, at the time of season so again nutrition changes over a season um, so yeah so again we shouldn't be stuck in this one size fits all I would say in anything when it comes to nutrition but especially when it comes to sports nutrition
0: Alright that's re- really really interesting um, Okay, and I think we've finally one last question from Ross, um, who is our uh, young sprinter from Lusk AC. Um, And Ross, I think, if I remember rightly, runs obviously 60 metres and 200 metres. So on race day, when you have to wait between heats or between, let's say, your 60 metre and your 200 metre event, what fuel should
1: you consume? Mm, you know, I suppose carbohydrate is going to be what you need. Um, and it is, again, it depends on how much time are between those events. But I would say after the 60 meters, when you're finished, that if you have an opportunity to eat as soon as you're finished so that you still have time between that race. That's probably the most important time to have it. And again, what I would say is don't feel like you have to have an actual meal. Often we will find in these things that you're kind of snacking throughout the day, right? So again, we're thinking of in the recovery phase in general, we're actually thinking of high sugar and protein combined. And so that's why we see a lot of products like flavored milk marketed, right? So again, I would say it will depend on um. After sixty meters, it will depend on how time he has until the two hundred. Uh, but also, I would look at snacking on maybe crackers, even things like nutrigain bars. What you don't want at this time really are things that are going to be very high in fiber and very high in fat. So it is trying to have kind of almost like white type carbohydrates to kind of snack on, and really. If you can eat earlier in the day and the night before to make sure you have those energy stores and then the next day you're just kind of topping up those stores. I would say also avoid drinking too much. It can be really easy to sip on drinks if you're nervous. And again, too much fluid and holding on to, to too much water is not necessarily going to make a sprinter any faster. So again, it's been mindful, I guess, of um, how much is coming in. And and this, again, comes back to practice. You know, it is practicing, even if you're doing... um. Uh, time trials and things in training you know have similar time gaps between and these kind of things and you know practice what kind of foods work for you on the day you don't want to eat too much you don't want to drink too much because it's all going to just be stuck in your stomach and that's not going to feel good for anyone and but you still will need to refuel with something so think about crackers think about bars that are lower in fiber and things like that should help
0: That's really super advice. So thanks. Thank you so much for that. Um, I suppose, Eiffel, that was our last question. So finally, I'd really like to thank you for joining us. Uh, We really appreciate it. Uh, It's been a fascinating conversation and I've really enjoyed it. So I suppose I want to wish you the very best of luck with your coaching uh, and um, your lecturing and your uh, consultancy consultancy, and uh, hope to see you maybe at some track event in the future.
1: Yeah, that would be great. I, I, uh, I had uh, Joe, Gough, you'll know Joe Gough, one of our Masters athletes in Waterford, in talking to my students last week and he's piqued my interest for some Masters events. So uh, that was part of the reason I was looking back over my old training notes. So we'll see. <laughs> watch oh, that this would, space.
0: That would be fantastic. That would be fantastic. We'll definitely uh, watch that space. So look, uh, have a great day and uh, hope to chat to you soon.
2: Thanks a million.
0: Really great to chat to and catch up with Eva Hearn. Next up we have my interview with Mark Dunn. So I'm really delighted to be interviewing LUSCAC member Mark Dunn about running and racing whilst managing his diabetes. So Mark, thanks a million for coming to talk to us. Very welcome. Delighted to be here Darren. Yeah, Brilliant. Um, so look, we're going to kick off with our questions. Um, and first up, maybe, could you tell us,
2: please, how and when you, find, you found out you had diabetes? Yeah, sure. So um it was back in around December 2017, so just over five years ago. And I'd been feeling tired for a couple of weeks in the run-up to that, where I'd be coming home from work and I'd just basically collapsed collapse down on the couch, fall asleep, you know. And, and it was very, very unlike me. It's not typical of me just to fall asleep on the couch watching telly but it was kind of a regular occurrence for for a couple of weeks but I put it down to being busy and stressed at work and then um, a couple of weeks later I went away to some Christmas markets and um, while I was there I got this unbelievable um, you know kind of thirst and uh, no matter how much I drank I couldn't quench that thirst at all. Um, and on one particular day, I think I drank about four litres of water. Oh my God. And, um, you know, still thirsty. Back in the in the hotel uh, that evening, I basically cleared the room out of any water that I had. Any, you know, Coke, 7-Up, whatever is, in the mini bar, cleared it all out and uh, just couldn't get rid of the thirst. And also, uh, constantly needing to go to the, the toilet and to, to basically urinate, literally you know, every every hour, right through the night, and all the way through the the, the weekend while I was away, um, and and so, and the other thing was, I guess I, I lost some weight in the run up to uh, to being diagnosed as well, and all of those symptoms are all kind of the classic symptoms of uh, of diabetes, and my partner Karen, uh, who was with me at the time, she she she's a nurse, so she recognised the the symptoms. Straight away, and uh, so once I got home, had bloods done, um, and pretty quickly it confirmed the diagnosis as a, as a type 1 diabetic okay. so to be honest it was, it was a big shock to me, because um, there's no history of diabetes in my family, um, and so a lot of things went through my head at the time, you know like. Why me? Um, you know, is there something that I did that's after causing this? Could I have prevented it somehow? Um, and then I started thinking about well, how it was going to affect my life and, and would it impact the things that I love doing because I really love scuba diving, hiking and back then I was doing a lot of cycling as well. So uh, um, I was really concerned about you know, how diabetes might impact all of those things. So the first thing I did was I tried to learn as much as I could about diabetes um, through the medical team that were treating me in Beaumont Hospital and also searching um, on Google. And one of the things I learned was that exercise um, really helps with controlling diabetes. So um, after Christmas then I, I went down to the local park run in Donabate and I ran my first ever 5k. And I loved it, and that's how I started running.
0: That's fantastic, and yeah. uh, so look, thanks for sharing that. I mean, and it's really great as well. You've you've listed the uh, the symptoms, so it's good that we can all take note of those, um, and particularly that it, you know, it uh, it, it developed in, into your in, in your forties, um, and maybe just for our listeners, could you just um, kind of in lay terms explain what exactly
2: diabetes is? Most people know, but just yeah. Uh, sure, yeah, no problem. So diabetes is a condition where the amount of sugar in your blood is, is too high. And there's basically two different types of diabetes. There's type one and there's type two. So I'm a type one diabetic, which that's the most severe of the two types of diabetes. And it accounts for, I think about 10 or 15% of, uh, of diabetics. It's a long condition and it's, it can't be reversed. So with type one, your, your pancreas stops producing insulin um, which means you now need to give yourself regular injections in order to uh, to replace that insulin that your body's not producing and the insulin is basically needed to to enable you to I guess tr- pass the sugars that you get from the food you eat into the cells and the muscles to give you energy and that's what, what's, what's really key then, when it comes to type two diabetes, um, the difference here is that you're still producing insulin, but your body becomes less sensitive towards it. So that results in high sugars as well. Um, but it's a less severe form, and in a lot of cases, it can be reversed through lifestyle changes such as change to your diet, more exercise, you know, <clears throat> losing weight, etc.
0: Okay, very good. Nicely said, Mark. That's, that's yeah. brilliant. Um, so, I suppose you, you, you realised or you, it was confirmed you had diabetes. And um, what other ways did, I suppose, that di- diagnosis impact your life? Like, it was clearly a shock, but what, what,
2: yeah. It, well, I, I guess it certainly was a shock. And, and at the time, I, I kind of made a promise to myself um, that I'd do everything I could to make sure that diabetes didn't stop me from achieving any goals or, or targets or anything that I wanted to do in my life. So I it was, it was pretty, pretty clear about that right from, from day one. Now, there are day-to-day impacts that you know, I can't avoid, such as um, So every day before I eat, I have to count carbs to work out how much carbs I, I, I'm going to eat, and then I need to, based on those carbs, I need to figure out how much insulin I need to inject. And that's, a, that's something that I'll have to do for the rest of my life. Every time I eat, look at how much carbs, then work out how much insulin, and off we go. Now, the problem with that is it's not an exact science either. So what you, what you do today could, you know, won't necessarily be the same as what you need to do tomorrow because it's impacted by lots of different things, impacted by your stress levels. Um, You know, whether you've you've done exercise already today, whether you're going to be doing exercise after you eat, because exercise is going to drive down your sugars. So you want to take less insulin to counteract that. Also, it's impacted by things like if, if you have a cold or if you're sick. So, but ultimately it's all about avoiding what we call hypos, which is low blood sugar levels, which basically cause a whole um, list of side effects from, you know, dizziness, confusion, you get elevated heart rates, you get shaking, um, sweating, and, and then if your sugars go really, really low, you can even pass out. And then, so that's, that's the hypose. but what's also really important is that you avoid high sugar levels too. So you really need to try and keep your sugars within, uh, w- within a range and the high sugars are what caused the kind of the serious long-term damage. So anyone who's undiagnosed as diabetic and their sugars are really really high for a significant period of time there's a risk that you know that you can have damage to organs, you know, you're at higher risk of stroke, cardiovascular disease, nerve damage and even blind blindness and, and loss of limbs. So that's a huge amount to take in when you're when you're first diagnosed and i'm pretty scary but all those side effects or symptoms that I've that just described there you know if you manage your diabetes well you know you don't ever have to deal with it my intention by taking control of my diabetes is that you know i never have to deal with any issues with with organs with uh, you know increased risk of cascade cardiovascular disease stroke all those things i'm basically trying to take control of the condition to prevent all of those things
0: okay that's brilliant i mean you've clearly done your research you 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 know it inside out and that that definitely gives you that level of control so that's really brilliant um so uh suppose some may feel that having diabetes could inhibit their their lifestyle and you've touched a
2: bit on this but what would you say to that I'd say it can absolutely if you let it but but it doesn't have to. I mean all those complications that I just talked about it's scary but it's all about taking control of the condition and not allowing it to control you and so if you take control and you focus on managing your sugar as well you can have a perfectly normal life while minimizing the risk of all those complications that that I mentioned. so like for me, if we go back to shortly after I was diagnosed, then back in 2008, I wanted to prove to myself that diabetes wasn't going to hold me back or wasn't going to prevent me from, from doing anything. So I decided to to give myself a bit of a challenge and uh, decided to climb Kilimanjaro with my, my partner, Karen. And um, so obviously it's a pretty high mountain you know uh, you really need to be kind of cardio fit so I focused on running to get me into shape for the trip and went away had a fantastic group of people that that I did the climb with and they included marathon runners there was triathletes it was a, a real mix of people but some people like I was looking at them going oh these guys are super fit they're, they run marathons they're they're triathletes um but I was pleasantly surprised that I was as strong as anyone in the group even though I was dealing with uh diabetes as a condition and um even on the summit night where we uh we basically we'd been hiking pretty much all day we rested for a few hours and then you know we we headed uh, for the summer around midnight with the idea that you get there just before sunrise and i was i felt really strong on that summer climb i was even singing with the guides as we were uh, as, as we were climbing and it was an absolutely amazing experience and it was one that gave me a lot of confidence in that yeah this diabetes doesn't need to you know hold, hold you back cuz i just proved that that I was able to do this, and actually, I was so much stronger than a lot of people who who weren't dealing with with, with diabetes as a condition. So that was that was really really good, and gave me a lot of uh, positivity. You know yeah. that I could that I could manage it and deal with the condition.
0: Oh, I mean, what what that's a fantastic achievement, um, and brilliant experience as well. I that's fantastic.
2: Yeah. love it.
0: Um, so I know. You were a keen cyclist before you, you, you got into running, and you used uh, running to help you get fit for your uh, trip to Kilimanjaro, Kilimanjaro. But maybe could you tell us a bit about your your running achievements to date? Yes,
2: yeah, sure. Um, no, pro- so I guess um, yeah. As you say, I was um, I was a keen cyclist. I, I, I raced for years um, before I got into running, um, and I guess. When when kids came along, it, it became a little bit more difficult to you know balance kids and and uh, the, the cycling because cycling the one thing about cycling is it takes a lot of your time in terms of the training that you need to put in in order to be able to race, um, and with running, I found it wasn't as intensive in terms of the amount of time it takes. So 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 that was that was really really good. So I guess. In terms of the the running then, so after I had climbed Kilimanjaro and I had met these people in the group, you know, who had been running marathons, I kind of thought, right, well, what am I going to do next? I've just climbed Kilimanjaro. So I said, you know what, I'm going to run a marathon. And I had no clue what I was getting myself into. I, I didn't know what it was going to take to run it, but I signed up anyway. Signed up for the 2019 Dublin Marathon, having never run further than 12K up to that point. So I got a training plan from the Irish Runner magazine and I ran four days a week. I took some of the sessions from, from that plan. Um, I only had time to run four days, even though it was a five-day plan, but um, that was, I thought that, was, that would, would be good enough. I didn't really understand the difference between tempos, fart legs, intervals, etc. So I w- literally went and just ran the distances. Um, and, and that's basically... <laughs> I got into running marathons. Um, was that a good experience then? Your first marathon, or yeah, yeah, it was. It was uh, it was amazing. I was delighted. I I uh, actually managed to to run it faster than than I than I expected. I, I did a three twenty nine for my first marathon, which I was really really um, delighted with, especially considering that I had uh, done all my training on my own and basically took a plan out of a magazine. So I was really, really delighted. But um, I, I guess there were a couple of things that stand out for me in relation to that first marathon. And that was that I was so focused and so determined that I wanted to prove to myself that I could run a marathon and that diabetes was not going to stop me in any way. So I, I can still remember to this day, and my partner Karen driving me into the start and me talking about how much it meant to me and that there was only the only way I wasn't finishing the marathon was if I had a medical emergency or a serious injury and because at the time it felt like the most important thing in my life I was so so you know focused on this is something I need to prove for myself that that I can do it. And actually, um, I remember when I crossed the line and my first thoughts were F you, diabetes. <laughs> Gray yeah. line. Yeah, it, it, it's true. It's exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's exactly how, how I felt. And um, then after running the marathon in 2019, I decided to join Lusk AC, um, which was an inspired decision, I have to say and it introduced me to runners and coaches who knew what they were doing. So pretty quickly I found that I was knocking minutes off my 5k, 10k, half marathon PB times. Um, but, But actually that wasn't the the best thing about joining the club. For me what I what I love most is how inclusive the club is. So it doesn't matter whether you're fast, whether you're slow, you know once if you're interested in running and you get out, there's a group there and there'll be people there that will have the exact same ambitions as you and so there's a place for everyone in the club and the club is so encouraging and supportive and i just just found that absolutely fantastic i yeah, know that's very true um so i mean obviously you I
0: mean i i, I train with from time to time you're gen- generally way ahead of me but um, how do you kind of manage your diabetes whilst training and then maybe in particular racing where you're kind of giving it socks?
2: Yeah, so I, I guess the key, th- well, one of the key things is I need to make sure that I have my my sugars as close within the, you know, a normal range as I can. So that basically means, um, you know, taking on enough carbs, before I run, before a race, and also making sure I have some insulin uh, in my system as well so that I can actually process all those carbs that I take in. It's not so big a deal for the shorter stuff. 5Ks, 10Ks, not really that big an issue. Where the challenge comes is the longer distances. You know, when you're doing your your long run, preparing for a marathon, you're doing, you know, 30k runs and they're the ones that are quite difficult and it comes down to uh, You know a lot of trial and error to try and figure out what works and what doesn't so in the run-up to my first marathon I I literally I made a lot of mistakes But I learned from the mistakes every week when I was running and when I was doing the long runs I kind of figured out what worked and what didn't work, you know whether to take carb drinks or gels and and all that kind of stuff. And I thought I had it um, figured out and, uh, you know, rocked up on the day of the marathon thinking, yeah, I have this sorted, know what I'm doing. And um, realized that I, well, I didn't know at the time, but I, I realized pretty quickly on the morning of the marathon that there was one factor that I hadn't really considered. And that is adrenaline. So I hadn't factored in the impact that the adrenaline would have uh, on you know even just the excitement and the anticipation of running my first marathon it drove my sugars through the roof like they went crazy crazy high and it didn't matter how much insulin I injected I uh, they were still far far too high and actually too high to the point that I probably shouldn't have even started that marathon but I did um, and so I have a I wear a continuous glucose monitor, which allows me to monitor my sugars without having to prick my finger and take a blood sample, which is really really useful when you're running. So while I was running, I was able to check my sugars and see, you know, were they so high, you where they high, where they low. Of mind. Yeah, so I could so I could understand where where it was at, and so I. But they still weren't coming down quick enough and i ended up injecting myself twice during the marathon as i was running and i was very conscious actually you know you're running along there's huge crowds in Dublin marathon you know watching and they're watching this guy running past with it with a needle sticking it in his, his side and <laughs> injecting himself and i was like what the hell is he doing here but you know it was it was something i had to do and uh but but you know, it worked, and it, and I got through the marathon, and it was all it was all positive. So I was delighted with yeah. that.
0: Another learning curve, another experience for, for the future. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so great, um, and I know that you've run two sub three marathons, but your first one in Belfast. Uh, um, that must have been a fantastic achievement and a great day for you and your your family and friends.
2: It was it was a fantastic day. It was a completely different experience to Dublin, because. By the time I ran Belfast, so Belfast was my second marathon and uh, <clears throat> I had joined Lusk AC. And as I mentioned, um, you know, running with people who, kn- who knew what they were doing this time around and could, could really give me, give me the advice that, that, that I needed. And to be honest, I'd never even considered running, trying to run a sub three marathon before. But a couple of the lads in the club suggested, you know, that I give it a go, that they felt I was capable of it. Um, so I thought about it for a while and then I thought, you know what, there's the next crazy, uh, you know, target or something <laughs> to, to go for, it. you know, cause I, I'm a very, uh, I guess, goal focused person. So, um, you know, when someone said, you know, I think you could run a sub three marathon mark, I was like, could I, and you know, what? I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a lash. So, so the club gave me a three hour plan, uh, which. I followed and off I went. And and actually the support I got from the club was fantastic in terms of even just the preparation with the plan and all that. That was that was really great. But the support on the day was was just amazing. There were people scattered all across the course at different points um, of the route. They had carb drinks for me, they had gels, you know. They, they had so much stuff so I didn't have to carry any of that stuff so I, and you know it didn't matter every few K there was always someone there if I needed extra carbs there was someone there to give me a gel or a carb drink and and it made such a difference and it made it so much easier not that it was easy <laughs> mind you, say because I mean I, I was well on track uh, for the sub 3 until about 5k to go and then the wheels started to come off big time. And the last 2K, I'd say the hardest 2K I've ever run in my life, but I wanted the sub three so much that I really, really pushed myself further than I, than I think I've ever pushed myself before, uh, that I thought it'd even be possible to push myself, but I did. And, uh, I, I don't ever want to push myself as hard as that again. But I can still remember, and um, the goosebumps coming around that final corner on the last 200 meters and i saw the clock saying 259 and it was counting it was still going and the crowds were screaming because they could see the clock as well and they were absolutely roaring for me and any other runners around me to you know to get in under under the three hours so i made it across the line with with 12 seconds to spare so uh, but those 12 seconds you know meant the world that is a me, brilliant, you know.
0: brilliant, story. Getting goosebumps myself here, Mark. Um, <laughs> I about, still do sometimes yeah, when I even sober. think about it. Yeah, yeah sober. Yeah. Um, so look, you're, no doubt you're you're a person who loves a challenge. Um, so, uh, what ambitious goal have you set yourself for uh, your next challenge?
2: Yeah. Well, I guess um, so. From a from a running perspective, yeah, I like last year I went back I went to Dublin and I, I did the 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 sub three again I wanted to prove to me myself that the first one wasn't a fluke you know and I, I ran another 2.59 it was a little bit quicker than the than than the first one I had I had a lot more than 12 seconds spare thank god but um this time around so I, I turned 50 over Christmas and uh, so I'm kind of excited to see you know what I can do as a as an over 50 running it so i want to run sub 3 again but i'd like to go a bit quicker than 259 so let's see where where, where we get to uh, come october that's good i'm not going to pin you down too many times don't <laughs> worry that's, i'm that not going to give you
0: time <laughs> i got that sense um and you know just i have one kind of um more kind of general question and it's uh, like are there many elite sports people with di- diabetes or have you got some good examples of you know just to provide some extra inspiration for people out there yeah
2: sure yeah i mean there's there's more than you think and um you know for me this was something that that i looked into when i was diagnosed because being a, having a keen interest in sports you know whether it be cycling running scuba diving whatever it is uh, you know I wanted to see where there are other people out there like me and still able to do all these things. So you know what I was surprised to find that there's even a professional cycling team out there uh, um, and they have an Irish rider called Stephen Clancy um, and they're, they're sponsored by a, a pharma company that make insulin which is you know obviously a, you know it's a good great marketing good connection ploy. or a good yeah. marketing yeah. ploy and they, I even just recently saw, they, they, they uh, made a documentary last year, which is on YouTube, which I watched recently, called uh, Ride for Your Life. And, and it's all about the, the team. And, and what's amazing about that team is every single one of the riders and all the support staff for that team are all diabetics. Brilliant. You know, so it's a truly inspiring story. Um, and then the other one that, that really stuck out, and I was really surprised when I heard, and it's Steve Redgrave. So he's won five Olympic gold medals. Now, he got diagnosed, I think it was it was either after medal number three or four, I can't remember. But even after getting diagnosed, he came back and won more gold medals in the Olympics. So he kind of, you know, that was inspiration for me that, you know, there's people out there that, you know, they can do, whatever they you know, they, they, they their set fields. their goal yeah, yeah absolutely now i i get you know steve redgrave he's he's having to manage his sugar for i don't know how, how long as a, a boat race it's it's 10 minutes maybe yeah. something like that it's not uh you know three hours <laughs> trying to yeah. run a march so there's additional complications that you get with running the you know doing a longer event like that more of an endurance mm-hmm. event but still i've found it really helpful and really inspiring that there were people out there yeah i mean he's
0: steve radgrave a true olympian no doubt um Mm. i suppose maybe just uh before we finish is there any kind of final words of advice for uh someone that maybe just finds out they have diabetes
2: in terms of maybe meeting their sporting goals or so well in in terms of sporting goals i'd say you know if you know any other diabetics or even if you're in a club and um, you know even talk to like the the chairperson or some of the some of the coaches in the club that they might actually know if there are other people in the club that with di- di- are that are diabetics and um, you know get to talk to them understand about the experiences that they've had maybe they've you know had some similar goals or um, that they've already achieved some of the things that you're trying to achieve and you can Get advice from them. But for me, um, I think that, you know, if you put in the hard work and you truly believe in the goals that you're setting yourself, then, you know, nothing's impossible with or without diabetes.
0: That's brilliant. Nicely said again. Um, So look, Mark, uh, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Really enjoyed chatting to you um, and had been looking forward to chatting to you actually as well, of course. Um, No doubt you'll offer some inspiration to... Many of our listeners, and uh, I'd like to wish you the very best of luck with your running this year, and of course your next uh, your next marathon. Is it DCM? DCM, yeah, DCN. that's the one. Good stuff.
2: Thanks uh, very much, Darren.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. So I'd like to finish by thanking all our listeners for tuning in. We really hope you enjoyed the show. In our next episode, you can look forward to an interview with Dr. Carmel Hutchison, a member of Drogheda and District Athletic Club. Who will be discussing women's health and running and also Lusk AC members Colin Brown and Colum Donahue, who will tell us all about their experience in Taurin in Poland at the World Masters Indoor Athletics Championships. I'd like to again thank our guests Eva Hearn and Mark Dunn and all the team that are working on the Lusk AC podcast Colin Brown, Julie Griffiths, Nicole Hodgson Dwayne Moore, Daniel O'Brien, Sean Smith, and Colin Wall. Also, the very best of luck to Colin and Colin at the Masters World Championships will be a brilliant experience, no doubt. And once again, please do rate the podcast and spread the word. We really appreciate your uh, continued support. Thank you.